G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Uh, but basically in America, you know, student loans became a thing kind of starting in the 50s from what I understand. So like we were losing the space race, right? Because Sputnik happened. And so the government got into it in a big way. And then initially, you know, the costs were pretty small. Uh, because higher education like wasn't this massive industrial complex, right? Like think about back in the day with healthcare, we didn't have like gigantic, you know, fifty, you know, uh, story hospital buildings. We had like the doctor that would treat everything that would go to your house, right? Um, and so with with school, what happened is is more and more resources got thrown behind it, and then more and more gains were happening because of education. That's true, right? And then I think that in the two thousands in America there was kind of rocket fuel put on the growth of student loan debt because they uncapped borrowing. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. To end the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Travis Hornsby. Travis is the founder of Student Loan Planner and the host of the Student Loan Planner podcast. Today, Student Loan Planner has consulted on over half a billion in student debt. Travis is a chartered financial analyst, and he brings the same intensity to analyzing the best repayment options for graduate degree professionals with six figures of student debt. 
Now, Student Loan Planner has helped over 2,600 clients save over $120 million on their student loans. And he's been featured in US News, uh, Business Insider, Forbes, Huntington Post, Rolling Stones, and my favorite media outlet, Vice Media. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show today, but let's enough out of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, Travis. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Mate, thank you for joining us. Um, I kick the show off with a pretty, uh, pretty inf- informal question, but uh, rewind, the, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. As a kid. I mean, I probably... Uh, and don't say man. mowing lawns. I get so many people saying mowing lawns. <laughs> you know, so I think it must have been, I guess the very first time I remember it was I probably got um, a dollar for my first A in the third grade. You know, so first day, yeah, for, okay. for my, you yeah. know, like every, every A I got on my report card, my, my granddad would give me a dollar or something like that. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was $5 for an A. I can't remember. I think it might've been a dollar and uh, you know, you get a, you know, you get a report card every quarter. Right. So I got seven bucks for seven A's, you know, as a kid in the third grade when I started getting letter grades for the first time and, and I felt really accomplished. So it's, nice. it's kind of interesting. It's it actually, it's kind of a wonderful um, uh, lesson because I had, I had friends that would get $20 bills for A's and I was getting like a dollar. I was like, granted, why are you giving me a dollar? You know, and it was like one, it was like, you're supposed to work hard, right? You're supposed to get good grades. It's not, you're not being paid to be a student. You need to want to do this intrinsically. So that was a wonderful lesson. And then the second lesson was that your brain can earn you a lot more money than go weeding, uh, you know, or mowing a lawn outside, right? So I did both. And, uh, and eventually my granddad started paying me above, well above market rate to mow his lawn, like, you know, way more than I should have gotten paid, Right. Um, right. but, but that was a amazing first lesson about money. Yeah, no, I, I think that sounds like your granddad had a bit of an influence on your upbringing. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, like, I can't really stress how big of an influence. I mean, he was sort of my, my hero, like some friends accused me of even kind of almost like viewing him as an, an idol or something. But, um, mm-hmm. but I think the reason I, I look up to him so much is just because he, uh, is one of these people that went through so much, right. Uh, you know, he, uh, went through the depression and their family lost their farm because, the uh, you know my great grandfather was a, was a principal of a high school high school and uh, then the Great Depression happened and then nobody paid their property taxes right and so in in the South where they lived instead of paying all of the county employees they literally just gave people script so they gave you an IOU that you had to receive a certain amount of money for your salary so imagine working for an employer that gave you a promise to pay at some point when they had the funds right that'd be pretty awful. And so he right. tried to go take that to the bank, you know, to try to get that to be used for his mortgage. And the bank said no, you know, mm. and so then they lost their farm because of that. And so his choice was basically to sell that script for whatever they could get for it. Uh, you know, so you literally, instead of getting your, your wages, you're getting pennies on the dollar for your wages because you're selling it to an investor and that's what they had to do. And so then, you know, they severely downgraded. And then my granddad had to fight in a world war and saw lots of people die around him. You know what I mean? So um, that caused him to be an extreme saver and investor. And he never made a ton of money, but he had an extraordinarily large, um, I guess, amount of money relative to what he did earn, if that makes sense. Right. You know. And yeah. so I always thought it was just really fascinating how somebody that uh, just worked really hard, was super smart, invested you know, in, in stocks from a young age, can have significant financial security for your family over the very long term. So that was my first lesson about finances. And so I guess, you know, you, whoever your hero is, you want to be just like, right. And mm-hmm. so I asked my granddad one time if uh, he could do it all over again and would he, you know, be an engineer again? He said, no, I probably would get into finance of some sort. And so I got into that um, sort of field, taking, taking some economics classes. And my first macroeconomics class was when Lehman Brothers blew up. And I'll, I'll, mm. I'll never forget my, my, <laughs> my prof, he came into the class and he took the book and uh, I want to say he just started ripping pages out of the book, but I think, I think what he did, he, he took the Wall Street Journal and he just ripped it to shreds and he just threw it all over the class and he's like, everything we knew about, you know, macroeconomics is, is gone. I don't know anything anymore. You know, we need to pull out all of our books about the Great Depression because that's what we need to figure out. Um, right. And it was so thrilling that I pursued that path that led to me becoming a bond trader. So that was kind of the next part of my journey. Interesting. So talk, so talk to me about that because it's all about the journey that you've gotten you to where you are today. And clearly your grandfather had a massive influence on your life as a, as a kid and obviously into your young adulthood because he influenced where you would go essentially in life. So talk to me about those days. Um, so you were at school during the, the 2008 crash? I was. And uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. Like 
the my economics professor just randomly said they were going to give a talk on the economy and what was going on. And uh, we're kind of close to the villages where I went to school, University of Florida, you know, the villages mm-hmm. is like one of the largest, uh, you know, place for seniors to retire in the country. And uh, the villages, I, I think the entire thousand old people showed up to hear this talk. I mean, it was truly unbelievable how many people showed up, uh, <laughs> you know, just because they were all freaking out about the markets, right? So, uh, so that was just, I mean, it was crazy. And then just getting to see that crash and then uh, just the recovery. Um, I mean, it was, it was really fascinating and just made me want to get involved in markets in some capacity just because of just how much action there was in it. Interesting. And so what did you get involved in? You went and said you became a bond trader. I did. That would have been, that would have been some, some bonds backed by some, some mortgage notes that might not have been <laughs> quite as good as they, you know, how, how did all that world work once after 2008? Yeah. I mean, so I got involved in something called the municipal bond market. So that's a little bit of a weird market for, for foreigners, right? Because it's a, it's a market that only exists the way it does in the United States. Basically, you know, cities and state governments and, you know, kind of, um, not-for-profit like toll road authorities and places like that, they'll go out and borrow without having to have their investors pay income taxes on the interest. It's called tax-exempt bonds, right? So it's a huge part of the market in America. And, uh, and so they you know, basically um, have these huge funds for people that are in super high tax brackets to avoid having to pay income taxes uh, on the interest. Mm. And so the idea is that investors are willing to accept a lower interest rate than they would on a you know, a corporate bond that is taxable. So the cities get a benefit, the investor gets a benefit, everybody's happy, right? Um, and so I was on this team that managed um, $100 billion uh, for, uh, of municipal bond, uh, you know, municipal bond debt. So it was, it was pretty big, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's and, huge. <laughs> and, and, and I got to see things like the bankruptcy of Detroit. I got to see the bankruptcy of Puerto Rico. Uh, I got to see all kinds of things that happened in the markets while I was there. But the thing that was missing from that was feeling like I was helping someone. So I really enjoyed teaching and really enjoyed helping others. And, uh, and that's the part that I felt like I was missing is when you're a bond trader, you have to have a skill set of paying attention to what's going on in the market and just that's all you do. And, and it's not like stocks where you like know what the ticker price is like on the tape all day. Like bond market's very negotiated. So like mm. you, you don't you don't really know what the price of something is. You just have to be attuned to the market. So it was really exciting, but it wasn't the perfect fit of my skills, right? So they like a lot of people in my life have said that you need to shoot for something where your passion and the world's great hunger meet. And so, you know, the world had plenty of bond traders and it wasn't necessarily my passion. And so I could be a good one, maybe above average one to really do really, really well. But I looked at my life and I thought, well, so let's say that I'm the world's most successful bond trader. I'm good at it. I have a lot of money, but am I happy? The answer was no. Then I realized I needed to do something else. And that's around the time I found the FIRE movement, which we can certainly talk about. But that's what led me to retire from being a bond trader at the age of 25. Interesting. So to talk to me about that, you said the FIRE, F-I-R-E? FIRE movement has been something that people talk about a lot, I think, in the media. It's financial independence, retire early. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting there in a corporate environment, not super happy with my day in and day out. And so I thought, okay, let me just quit and, uh, and just travel the world. But before I did that, I wanted to hit a substantial level of assets so that I could afford to not work for a while. Because the worst thing you can do is go quit and travel around and then have to go right back to that same corporate existence you weren't enjoying, right? So, uh, so I, I saved up a significant chunk of my, my money and had like an extreme, like extreme savings rate, like 70, 80%. Yeah, I was living right. in an unfinished basement at some point. I was a freaking weirdo back in the day. Um, <laughs> and, and, and hit this level of savings rate so I could save so much. And then while this happened, 2012 to 2015 were unbelievable years in the market, right? So, you know, my um, investments were soaring at the same time as I was contributing a ton of money. And so um, I'm not saying that I had like, you know, seven figures or anything, but I had a significant amount of money stashed away where I could afford to not work for a while. Like uh, what did what did you do? Did you go traveling? Where'd you go? I went everywhere but Australia uh, and, and, and and Asia. No, I don't mean, say don't say you went to New Zealand. You no, I didn't. No, I didn't. So I, I went to I met a ton of Australians though, and yes, and, we're everywhere, and and they're either very nice or very rowdy. One of the two. <laughs> Um, you know, so, so like, I can't speak to my fellow countrymen, all right. And their behavior. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so we had, uh, I went all over Europe, like 30 something countries in Europe, 10 something countries in Latin America, um, you know, did just very bizarre stuff. Like, you know, lived in Ukraine for a bit, 
you know, took, took a, a bus through El Salvador. Like, wow. It's uh, awesome. Yeah. It was just amazing. It was the kind of stuff. How long were you going you know, for? Uh, a year. I mean, like, but I was, I was off and on, like I would come back occasionally, you know, to see family and stuff like that. I would probably actually a year and a half I traveled. And, um, and the thing that happened next was right before I quit my job, I met the woman who's now my wife and, uh, she had a lot of student loan debt. Right. So that's kind of the segue into what I do now, because, uh, I thought it would be pretty easy to help her figure it out. Right. Cause I was a bond trader, Excel skills. I know how to do this stuff. Right. So, um, so anyways, we were talking and I realized it was a lot harder than that because like, unlike in other countries, the debt in America is huge. And mm -hmm. unlike other countries, there's all these ways to mitigate it, like forgiveness plans, you know? So there's all these different programs. Like for her, there was this not-for-profit and government service program that she could use called public service loan forgiveness. So this is a program where essentially think of it like paying a tax for 10 years and then all of your debt's forgiven. So imagine, imagine you had the option to pay a 10% income tax for 10 years and then never have any debt for your student loans ever again. That's basically what this program is. But now imagine that this, like, now imagine that she wasn't set up to pay that income tax in the right way, right? Like, right. Imag yep. and that now imagine she had the wrong kind of loans for part of that period. And now imagine that the place that was supposed to track that for her not only didn't track it, but actively gave her the wrong information as to how many years of credit she had towards this program. So she should have actually been only three years away from having a six-figure student loan balance forgiven. Instead, it got botched and she didn't get any of it forgiven. Wow. You know? And so that was a six-figure mistake. And so I thought, wow, this is uh, essentially two years of her take-home pay as a doctor in training, a resident, right? Mm -hmm. So two years take-home pay just because of somebody making a mistake with personal finance that they didn't understand before. Right. Interesting. Well, well, dude. Before we dive into that, because I want, it's very interesting, and, and and to the travel part, well done. Because a lot of Americans couldn't even think of taking two weeks off at one time. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> the fact that you went away for eighteen months is uh is, is awesome because it it changes the psyche of of how Americans do think. And you got you guys are very you're, you're the land of capitalism and opportunity and all that good stuff, but. Taking time off is is freaking you go you all go nuts, right? <laughs> I mean, I would honestly, if if there was some sort of like this is a little weird to say, but if there was like a nuclear war and I could get in somewhere else, I'd probably be Australia because you know, I mean, people were very friendly and it was just a very open kind of culture and and, and again, such a globalized uh, kind of path. Like basically, I asked one of the Aussies I talked to, I was like, "Why? Wow, how are you guys all over the world? Like wherever I go, you're there, and it doesn't matter if it's in Latin America or Europe or you know the Middle East or whatever. I just see you everywhere." And he said, they said, well, basically, here's how it goes. You know, it's so freaking expensive to leave Australia. I mean, it's just, it's a small <laughs> yeah. fortune. And so when you finally get away from it, it's, you just want to actually make sure that it's worthwhile, you know, because it's going to cost yeah. a small fortune to do it again. And then yeah, also, exactly. I think that they had like a six month kind of, uh, you know, kind of break or something like that between university or something like that. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's more to do with just, it's entrained in our DNA to, to do it. To do it. Like, yeah. Just be like, you, you, you got the rest of your life to be at, to be at school, go go enjoy it now. Um, yeah. I, did, I did it after I finished school. So you either do it before from high school to uni, which you're probably a little bit too young, like yeah. you're only 18, 19, yeah. where I did it when I was 21, 22, 23. Yeah, and so, it's, it was so yeah. fun. I mean, so, so I think that... Uh, yeah, the world travels. I mean, I can't stress that enough because you find out a little bit more about what you want in life. Exactly. When, when you're so stuck, 100%. when you're so stuck in that grind, you know, you're just so focused on, oh, I got to do a good job in the next project, or I got to do, yep. you know, I got to do a great job for my friend's birthday party, or like, I got, you know, whatever. I don't know, like just the day to day stuff that you worry about, like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight is going to be good. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, when I was abroad, I didn't care at all. Like, I only had the next two or three days of my life planned. Like, because I would, that was it. I, I would, that was it. I would plan out like the hostel stay and then probably like third or fourth hostel night. Like if I was enjoying a place, I would like ask if they had another night, you know, well, usually they did. And then, uh, and then if I, when I was ready to move on, I would just look and see what the next stop was, you know? Yep. And so I, I think the number one piece of advice I could give to people and the most freeing, particularly more for males and females, a little harder for females to travel alone, Sure. but backpacking by yourself. Mm-hmm is the most liberating thing I can recommend to anyone. And, yeah. and when you're young in your early 20s, I have some people that I was sort of being a bit of a mentor to. They're like just out of college and they're going straight into a job and blah, blah, blah. And they're stressed. And then I'm like, how old are you? And they're like 24. And I'm like, dude, go and 
travel the world go for two right years. Now. Even if yeah. you came, go even if you came back at twenty six, that you're still freaking young. Like relax, yeah. like go and go experience the world, make some mistakes, learn the learn the the university of life, yeah, and uh, and learn how to backpack by yeah. and meet people. So the, the yeah. other thing I would add to that is is that you have to do it. I would say unless you're married and have kids, you know, so you got to do it because even if you're mm-hmm. in a relationship, like you you should obviously have a discussion about it. it is a serious like discussion <laughs> to have like I'm not, I'm not kidding that it's not but but you want to make sure that your relationship can survive something like that because right. yes. like realistically in your life like you will have things like you know temptations of the attractive new person right that's mm-hmm. like all, you know also in the hostel with you and it's like if your mm-hmm. partner's not there right like you know the equivalent i guess is you're on a business trip or something right so it's like you know, is your relationship strong enough to survive something like that? I'm not saying go out and intentionally test it or something, but like, but do, <laughs> I know what you mean, but do it. Yeah. But mean. do it if you're single and if you're in a relationship that where you're not married already, like I would say do it even more like, and just make sure, and obviously it would be fun to probably travel with your, you know, you know, you know, partner well, or whatever. But the, the, the number one thing they say is like, go traveling if you're in a new relationship and test the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I think I just wish more people would do that as Americans. Cause I think that yep. we're, people are way too progr- programmatic here. Like I mm-hmm. think one of the problems is we, why like maybe entrepreneurial activity isn't where we need it to be. It's just people mm-hmm. don't take risks because they're so afraid of what could happen. And, um, and, and the thing is, is the only people that need to be worried about risks are the people who haven't prepared to handle what could happen. Right. You know, right. No, I, I complete. And, and I guess what I can hear in you, in you is that you love uncertainty like myself. You know, I, yeah. I, I quit my job uh, back in 2012 and moved to America with just an idea to, to try and make it here. And the, 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 the backup plan was to move back to Australia. Yeah. You know, that was, that was it. And so, um, but no, ex- extremely interesting. I just wanted to touch on that because you, you've clearly created a freedom lifestyle where you've gone abroad and, and traveled the world and become so much more knowledgeable about how other people think, about how other cultures uh, interact with one another and you become more rich not actually through wealth generating you know efforts but just through travel and meeting people and i think you know travel is one of the best things you can spend money on and you know you open it takes the blinkers off and it makes you so much more open-minded not just narrow-minded and worrying about what the hell you're gonna have for dinner or worrying about if uh you're gonna buy a maserati or not you know like all that sort of superficial crap that you don't need in your life so, so yeah really awesome um well, i want to do get into the, the nuts and bolts of what you do so you mentioned earlier about the student loan debt so do you want to give maybe a breakdown of of how you when you came back from your travels how you decided to get into the student loan debt and maybe for those people who don't understand who are foreigners who don't most of my listeners are americans but who don't understand the maybe the big business that is university here in America. Yeah, I mean, so I, I've been trying to do a little bit of a comparative research because like it, it really is interesting the different student loan systems that exist out there. Uh, but basically in America, you know, student loans became a thing kind of starting in the 50s from what I understand. So like we were losing the space race, right? Because Sputnik happened. And so the government got into it in a big way. And then initially, you know, the costs were pretty small. Uh, because higher education like wasn't this massive industrial complex, right? Like think about back in the day with healthcare, we didn't have like gigantic, you know, 50, you know, uh, story hospital buildings. We had like the doctor that would treat everything that would go to your house, right? Um, and so with, with school, what happened is, is more and more resources got thrown behind it. And then more and more gains were happening because of education. That's true, right? And then I think that in the 2000s in America, there was kind of rocket fuel put on the growth of student loan debt because they uncapped borrowing uh, mm. for, for, for borrowers, right? With something called the plus loan. So in America, this plus loan is used one of two ways. There's a, a plus loan you can take out for a graduate student. That's to cover any kind of professional school. You want to become a doctor, lawyer, dentist, whatever. If you want to borrow for your kids, you can take out a parent plus loan. And so neither one of those two loans have any cap on the amount that you borrow and it's totally subject to what the uni says is the cost of attendance, right? So if they tell you that it costs $400,000 to become a dentist, you literally can get fully government-backed loans directly from the government for the entire 400000 with no credit history and no income like history at all. 
I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. Well, it's interesting you say government loans because I, I, I just want to jump in here because in Australia, we have government loans as well. They're called hex debt. Mm-hmm. But our hex, you know, for a four-year civil engineering degree with honors, it cost me like $20,000. Right. And so it's great that there's government-backed loans. The issue seems to be the universities charging for this business of, I think you need to pay $400,000 to become a dentist, which is completely ludicrous. Well, it's a little different. So like the average student loan debt for uh, colleges in general, I think is like 35,000, maybe something like okay. along those lines. I mean, so that's for undergrad degrees. But the thing is, is uh, for undergrads, they cap what you can borrow and you're not allowed to borrow a bunch of private loans because you're not going to have a credit history to do it with. And so the undergrad system is a little bit more modest debt. So, you know, our student loan debt, I would probably classify it as maybe approximately double that of Australia's for an undergrad degree. So I think that that's, it's, it's probably still more than it should be, but it's reasonable, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where we see people getting in a ton of trouble, um, are, I think that there is a little bit more of a broader idea of what constitutes an education, higher education in America. So like, you know, you can go become a barber and, you know, instead of just literally being a barber, there's all these licensing rules that cause all these barber colleges to pop up. And you, you know, you have people like in one case, there was like a, a college that focused on people with uh, criminal records or something. And uh, to try to like help them get barber jobs, but they were charging them ridiculous costs <laughs> to go get a barber degree when you don't need a barber degree to freaking, you know, right. cut hair, you right. need experience right on the job training. Right. And so these people were being asked to pay back, you know, 20 grand, uh, you know, for a, a barber degree. Yeah. Like, and you're not going to do that that easily on a, you know, on a, uh, on a kind of a minimum wage type of income. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one problem. The other problem is the huge balances. So I would kind of blame both of those sides of the coin basically. So we probably give out loans too liberally for too many programs in the U S when we really should be pushing people more towards like on the job trade or vocational training, uh, which would exist if we didn't require licensing for like a billion different professions, you know? And then the other thing is just the cost of professional schools so high because of this uncapped borrowing. So right. that's interesting with Australia. I think that I've read stories uh, that the Kiwis might even have it worse. Like basically I've, I've seen people get arrested in uh, the uh, New Zealand airport that are New Zealanders that have, uh, you know, fled, <laughs> fled the country. Yeah. They flee the country to try to avoid paying their student loans. And, uh, and it's actually a huge problem. Like actually relative to the size of the economy, apparently New Zealand yeah. and America have about similar size student loan debts. So it's I don't yeah I'm not I can't comment on that but I do know that like Australia used to have like a if you've left the country and haven't paid taxes in you know 5 years or 6 years it just whatever undergrad degree you've got is is gone um yeah. you know is 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 repaid the the other systematic issue is I go I went straight into civil engineering school from from high school I didn't have to go and do an undergrad to then qualify to go to civil engineering school yeah which is another issue which is like jamming more things in your throat that you need to have all this stuff to right. get hoops to jump through to get to the point of where you can finally choose what you want to do and so um yeah it is it, it's very much but even on like the medical side of it where I've, i do not have friends who've gone down the medical which was probably more comparable it's nowhere near the debt that you you, you still take out government-backed loans but they're hex debts where they're really low interest rates and it's a reasonable amount. It's not, but here's, but here's the, here's where it gets weird, right? So like the way I got into doing this is like my wife had these complicated student loan problems. Right. And then I found out that so did veterinarians and dentists and lawyers and all of our friends that had these professional programs too. And in America, you can pay a percentage of your income for 10 to 20 years and have it forgiven. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And so for, for the case of a doctor here, so let's do it like a brain surgeon, for example. So a brain surgeon probably has seven or eight years of training they're going to do before they're making 600 grand a year, right? So certainly way more income than in Australia, I think. You know, they can, brain surgeons in America can make 600000 a million dollars a year pretty right. easily. So right. uh, say you do that work at a not-for-profit hospital, which the training period is all done in a not-for-profit hospital all the time. So while you're enrolled in that training period, you'd pay about two or $300 a month on your $400,000 of medical school loans, right? So $300 a month, that's, you know, $3,500, $3,600, you know, a year. Yeah. So 
basically add that up over about seven or eight years, right? So seven or eight years, and it's actually nine years because they look at your last year's tax return. So you could pay, if you structure it right, you could pay nine years of about, let's just say three grand a month to keep it easy. Uh, you know, it's $27,000, give or take, right? And then one year you'd pay 10% of half of your attending income because you, know, you graduate in summer and you earn the rest of the year at your attending pay. And so what happens is maybe you pay about 2000 a month for that one year based on that high income, right? So you mm -hmm. paid about 27,000, add like 20 something thousand. So the total sum of the payment was about 50 grand, okay? So if you utilize that program correctly, the cost of your medical school was not $400,000 plus interest, it was $50,000 over 10 years. For, for a degree that pays you a minimum of $600,000 income. Do you see why that's so impactful? So they, yeah. basically, if you know how to utilize that program correctly, the brain surgeon just got the equivalent of a house, tax-free, by the way, you know, which means that if you look at the pre-tax income you'd have to make, it's probably double whatever the forgiveness is. So they got a free house from the U.S. taxpayer, you know, hmm. the average tax, you know, the, the government, right? And that's all because they knew how to utilize the loan rules. And so in terms of your audience, because I know your audience is really interested in real estate and things like that. So, you know, if there are ways where you can think of your debt as a tax, not a debt, that's the way thing that liberates you in the United States. So if you have a ton of debt and you feel like you're totally screwed, the only scenarios I see where people truly are totally screwed is when they have a lot of private loans with a super high monthly payment, right? Private loans certainly are a challenge. So if your monthly payment's too bad, you can try to refinance it to a 20-year term to get a lower payment. That's the only option that a private loan borrower has. But most people don't have private loans, they have government loans, right? So your audience that has government loans, even if they have a whole bunch of government loans, what they can do is think about their loans as paying a percentage of their income and I mentioned that program earlier. That's for people that work at not-for-profit or government employers. So that's about, that's about a quarter of the U.S. workforce. So that's one in four of your listeners, you know, you know in theory, right? And so mm -hmm. what about the three in four that work in the private sector or want to have full-time careers in real estate or something like that, right? You can still pay a percentage of your income. Instead of taking 10 years, it takes 20, you know? And, the, the, right. and then the other thing to think about is the... Uh, Forgiven debt after 20 years is considered taxable income. It's treated as a bonus when it's forgiven if you're in the private sector, right? So in other words, if I owe $100,000 and it grows to 200,000 and that's forgiven, you know, I've had to pay income tax on 200,000 when it's forgiven in 20 years. But mm. there's, there's different things you can do, like the kind of more simple strategies are, are reducing your income on your taxes, doing things like putting money into retirement savings, like reducing the number that they take the tax of. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And there's some more advanced strategies with real estate investors, basically called professional real estate investor status, which is, yep. which is really interesting because if you're not the person that wants to do the professional real estate stuff, say your spouse is, right? Well, then that spouse could do a bunch of, you know, um, improvements to real estate, create a bunch of losses on paper, uh, build wealth that way, but then use that to write off that um, active income that you have and reduce your tax rate. But remember that that student loan payment can be treated not as a amortized debt payment that you would think of as a mortgage being. It can be treated as a percentage of your income. That's the groundbreaking thought. So imagine if you're for a second able to get your income super low through the U.S. professional real estate investor status, then you could pay 10% of zero, right? Mm -hmm. And then another loophole that's kind of fun uh, if somebody wanted to do a reverse read and go to Australia, right? Um, so this is interesting because the U.S. actually grants citizens uh, an exemption of $100,000 of income earned abroad before they have to claim any income in their United States. Yep. And remember that student loan payment is a percentage of your U.S. taxable income. So if I move to Australia and I owe student loans and I earn less than $100,000, I can file in the U.S. with a $0 income and get my payment based off of a $0 income in the United States. But doesn't the loan still stay there over time? It does, but those $0 a month payments count towards forgiveness. Interesting. So right? do you think there's been a lot of talk about forgiveness payments yep. recently, particularly in the, you know, the political sphere running up to the 2020 election? Do you think that's going to be a massive issue that's going to be dealt with in the next couple of years? Like, 
there's going to be a lot of forgiveness and debt being forgiven through uh, through candidates well, talking about it? There's absolutely going to be debt forgiven, but it's going to be gradual rather than all at once. And the reason why I think that's the case is you already have the rules in the books. You're probably not going to see those become less generous because I really can't point to any federal program that's become less generous. You know, I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen, right? You have interest groups that form and that protect those benefits. You know, the way things change when something is too generous is it gets worse for people that take advantage of it in the future. That's, right. that's how we correct overshoots like in America, right? So, mm -hmm. so what, I, what I would expect is you're going to see um, basically politicians look at the problem and the more progressive wing is going to say, let's forgive it all. They'll try to put some executive order forward to forgive it all. A extremely conservative judiciary in the United States is going to say, hey, no, that's not okay. And they're going to block it. And then they're going to say, you have to loop Congress in on this. And then I think whoever's the president and the Congress will have to come up with a system of basically turning this into a tax. Because that's what it is in other countries. If you look at the UK, if you look at Australia, if you look at most other English-speaking countries with student loans, the worst case scenario is that the student loan debt is a tax. And that's it. And there's no tax bomb. There's no complicated forgiveness programs. There's no like, you know, weird incentives going on. Uh, and in some cases, there's 0% interest, you know I mean? So, so I think that that's what's going to happen. It's like right now, the student loans in America are actually a tax, but you actually have to know quite a lot of math to realize that, mm, you know, because right. people don't understand the concept of keeping something around for 20 years of lowering their taxable income so that you lower the number they take the percentage of for the student loans. They don't understand the idea of something like professional real estate investor status to reduce your adjusted gross income to pay less in your student loans. And they don't understand the concept of saving money along the way to prepare for the income tax bomb when your student loans are forgiven. So these are all fairly complicated topics. And also, I, I didn't <laughs> mention this, but you also have to include your spouse in this income-based repayment. So imagine getting you know, a ten, you know, 10 percent of your income bill, and you get married to some wonderful person who doesn't have student loans, and suddenly they're getting hit with a 10 percent tax too. Right, right, right. So, which is which is which is essentially me. You're talking about me and my wife right now. She has some student loans out there, not 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 a significant amount, but she still does. Yeah, and um, it's, it's probably enough that we could pay it off very quickly. But uh, it's uh, and I think she actually got those loans to come to university in Australia, coincidentally. And mm. I know international students are, t are charged a lot more yep. at any university across the country in proportion uh, across the across the world western countries yeah uh, in proportion to other local students yeah um so it's you know like it's like going to if you're a resident of california it's a lot cheaper to go to ucla than it is to go to harvard in Boston, sure right? sure so well you want to um, you want to make up some numbers here uh, we don't probably shouldn't put yeah. the real ones out but let's let's sure. just let's just make up some numbers like throw out some numbers pretend that thirty thousand dollars okay and what's what's her hypothetical income uh hypothetical income 50 60 grand a year okay so say you're a brand new college grad and you're not married so if she consolidated her student loan debt of $30,000, so the way you do that is you go to this, uh, this, this site called uh, studentaid.gov. I want to make sure they just changed the website too. So I want to make sure that uh, studentaid.ed.gov is the, is the site. Uh, actually, studentaid.gov works too. So, okay. so, you, so you go to that site and you just request to consolidate your student loans. Just click through everything, give them everything they ask for, and then sign up for the revised pay-as-you-earn program, okay? And so this revised pay-as-you-earn program would give her a subsidy of 50% of all of her interest on her unsubsidized loans for the first 12 months after graduation. And then on the uh, subsidized loans, it's actually 100% subsidized for the 12 months after graduation, uh, first three years, actually. So in other words, what is a 50% interest subsidy worth? So if she's got 30,000 of loans, let's say that she's got interest charges of $200 a month. That's $100 a month that she's saving and she's getting to pay $0 in payments and the interest does not compound. That's the other pretty mm. cool thing. So it's growing at a rate of simple interest, right? So right. effectively you took like a six or 7% loan and she's graduated. She's probably thinking about doing other things like maybe saving for a car, emergency fund, saving for a wedding perhaps, like whatever, right? And, uh, and so then instead of having to throw all of her money towards the loans, she can put some of her money towards these other things and also mitigate the interest cost. Right. Interesting. And so, so does this apply to, apply to anyone who's graduated? Like, you know, she's green graduated for a couple of years now and probably is, you know, so here's the, a couple of years. Yeah, so here's the problem. So now that she's making 50,000, 
now her prior year tax return shows 50,000, right? Mm -hmm. And so now 10% of her income minus a little bit of a deduction probably results in her paying $300 a month on her student loans, right? And so right. $300 a month fully covers all the interest costs. So because of that, there's actually no subsidy in that case. And so what she should do instead is let's say she's got a 6% interest rate. Well, today you can refinance probably to a 3 or 4% interest rate. And does that save you a ton of money? No, but it saves you a couple thousand dollars, right? right. A few thousand dollars. So that's probably the equivalent of the take-home pay of an entire month just for doing something like moving your student loan to a lower interest rate. And, and one of the ways that I guess this, this student loan planner is different is we've uh, taken lower commissions than basically anybody else in the market to create welcome bonuses when people do refinance. So for example, some of, yeah, so like it depends on the amount a lot of times what bonus we'll be able to negotiate for readers, but uh, it's, it's often like, you know, $100 to $750 uh, is, is the typical bonus range, range. So think about like opening a credit card, but kind of in reverse, you're cutting your interest rate on your student loans and actually getting paid to, to do that. And the, the banks like that because the government charges everybody the same price. So if you have a good debt to income ratio, like, you know, your wife would in this hypothetical example, then, um, then she's going to be a better credit risk than that interest rate that the government's charging her shows. Right. So that's like, that's like a refinancing path, you know, and then like a forgiveness path is let's say that your wife was a teacher, you know, and so she's got that, you know, let's say a $50,000 income and let's say that you make, you know, 60, 70,000 and she's got, you know, that $30,000 of, of debt. So she, and you could file taxes separately, married filing separately, probably for a pretty small penalty, you know, I would, I would probably, that's kind of complicated to discuss, but you can pretty much get rid of most penalties from filing separately uh, for taxes. So you filed separately for taxes. So now she's only got to show her 40 or $50,000 type income, right? But mm -hmm. she probably has a retirement plan at work, right? So with her retirement plan, she can maximize that because let's say that you're making enough money to, or, you to know, support. to support yep. the family, right? And so she puts a lot of her salary into her retirement. And so what yep. that does is it lowers her taxable income from, let's say, 50000 to about 30000 mm -hmm. okay? And then you also get a deduction uh, of about $20,000 before they take any percentage at all, okay? So, so you started at 50, now you're down to 30 for retirement. Now you're down to 10 that they take the 10% of for the payment based on your income. So 10% of $10,000 is $1,000 a year, maybe about $80 a month, Okay. That's, so that's awesome. So $80 a month, you know, so, you know, you think about over 10 years, you'd pay about $10,000 on a $30,000 loan balance, about 20,000 of that plus the interest that would have accrued would be forgiven tax-free. Interesting. Right. That's, so that's, that's incredible. So, so yeah, so that's a way to get a car worth of forgiveness. And that's a case with a, what I would call a fairly small balance. I know that sure, sounds like yeah. a crazy thing to say, but our average a borrower actually owes about $260,000, you know, wow. because, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like when a teacher hears like, so like, what is, what is our kind of, um, you know, how do you make your money? Right. Like, so we charge a, a few hundred dollars for consulting fees, basically mm -hmm. uh, for one-off plans. We customize it, figure out what to do. And so when you have $30,000, you're kind of like, well, you know, if I What's might, the point? yeah, if I, yeah. if I might save like $1,200 of interest or something, like I'm not going to spend, 500 bucks to save, you know, 1200. Cause like maybe you don't save that. Right. And, and, and then the forgiveness cases, you know, again, it's just probably not this huge pressing thing. Cause you probably just think, oh, I'm just going to pay it off even though you can yep. save a bunch of money. But when people owe the equivalent of a mortgage on their brain, then that's what, when people get really freaked out. And when people, yeah, kind of, no, hundred percent, you know, wave the flag and they say, okay, yeah, I need, I need some advice, you know? Um, but, but yeah, go ahead. Keep going. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I wanted to uh, get into the, you know, the part of the show where like, where, where do people reach out to you to, to, to understand more about what you do? I'm sure you have a lot of online qualifications that you can go take a quick test and, you know, see if you qualify, see if we, you know, can be a fit for, for your company in order to help them, you know, relieve themselves of some debt. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's listening to this, they like podcasts. So I would say first check out the Student Loan Planner podcast. So we're on every place that you subscribe to this show. Uh, if you just type in student loan planner, you'll find our podcast. So that's the way to get free help, right? The person struggling, can't afford anything. That's that's what I'd recommend for that person. And then for people who can't afford something, go to studentloanplanner.com slash help. So that's the page that you'll read about our services. That's basically for people who are needing to know what to do. You don't know any idea. You don't have any idea what to do. And the people who do know what to do, they want to pay off their debt as fast as possible. 
the refinancing links are at studentloanplanner.com slash refi. And then uh, on that, on the page, you'll see like a little contact button. So, you know, if people want to get in touch, they just hit that contact button and just leave us a message. Awesome, man. Well, look, I, uh, I, we could be talking about this for hours. It's a huge issue in the United States today. A lot of people are being affected. We didn't even get to the side of the coin of why universities charge so much, which is, I think, a huge systemic issue as well and something that you need to, we also need to address as a country because the cost of a civil engineering degree or, or, or medic, medical degree in Australia or New Zealand or the United Kingdom is a lot less than, say, what you get charged here in the United States. And so that is, that's directly a function of what the universities are charging. Um, so something which is a whole other side of the coin, which we're not obviously going to address in this one 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 hour podcast. But mate, uh, at the end of every show, I like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your show, uh, towards, towards, towards your growth? Towards my growth, I would say try to learn something new every day, reading the news, uh, trying to learn something about something that I don't know anything about. Awesome. What are you reading right now? Uh, I like reading um, Wall Street Journal and uh, just like, right, I'm reading this book called Call Stories right now, just like people that were inspired to pursue specific paths um, in the ministry in particular. So I think this is interesting. I'm not considering becoming a pastor, but I just really enjoying seeing what, uh, you know, what other people kind of, what led other people down this, this path of devoting yourself to spiritual uh, kind of occupations versus like going out for just money. <laughs> so sure. it's, it's kind sure. of interesting. That is interesting. It's a, it's a very trip. I always have the same issue, or not issue, but the same thought process as well. So maybe people are consumed by money that they've got to go earn a lot of it and other people are consumed by just giving back and the greater good of humanity. So uh, it's very inspirational. Uh, what, who is the great or most influential person in your career? And maybe you've already mentioned him earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, besides my grandfather, I would probably say, um, oh boy, I mean, Probably my professor of economics when I uh, uh, was was ITA'd and did a research assistant job for him, and just the amount of, of things that he uh, taught me were just very consequential to me pursuing a path of learning uh, about economics, which led to everything since. That's awesome. That's awesome. In your business, what is the most influential tool that you use? And when I say tool, it could be a phone or it could be a, a software that you use online. What do you use on a daily habit, a daily a daily practice? Google Analytics. So it's kind of oh, like yeah? any any business, you have to know your numbers, right? And you have to know what's driving your success. Otherwise, you will not have any clue what to invest your next dollar in. So mm -hmm. when we have something like Google Analytics to track what people are clicking and where and what pages are successful, which ones are not, I know what things more people are interested in. I know what things that are successful uh, and which things are not. And, and it, it influences a lot of our capital allocation decisions. Interesting. No, I think that's really good to, to, again, know your numbers for your business in order to understand where to invest next so you can steer the ship towards a, a successful horizon. So it's so a really, really, really good stuff. In one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Um, <laughs> So when I was feeling not super enthused about being in the corporate world, I, I got a bad performance review. I, uh, I was, you know, just not, uh, I, I, let's just put it, I, I wasn't working as hard as I should have worked and I wasn't putting the face forward that I should have. Like, you know, mm -hmm. so for example, uh, you know, I fell asleep, I fell asleep in a meeting one time, you know, uh, it was super boring and I literally fell asleep. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, that wasn't looked at well. Um, and, and rightfully so, I mean, that, that gives a bad look. So I would say that was my biggest career failure is just, um, you know, just not being a top performer from What'd a you learn from it, but? perception perspective. Well, the thing that was interesting is at the same time, I was knocking it out of the park in terms of like tools and things I was coming up with. So I was super creative and, and really having, I think a nice impact on, the group that I was in, but I did not have a lot of the sort of visual cues and the perceptions that I was right. Yep. And so, so much yep. of corporate America is kind of like the perception, like who's, mm -hmm. you know, who's got your butt in a chair for how long. Right. I mean, that's kind of a lot of what it's like. And then what's crazy is I work a lot less now, like a lot, lot less and make significantly more. And it's because it's all based off of results and not based off of projects or hours or some or, or perception as you per, or perception so i you know if i fall asleep in a meeting now uh the only person that yells at me is my wife when she gets home you know because I, <laughs> I work at home a lot you know so i joke around but it's like uh but it's amazing if you feel like you're confident enough to bet on yourself i highly suggest it 
That's awesome. I think that's, that's, that's a massive takeaway. Betting on yourself is really, really important and something that you've clearly gotten spades. Mate, one last question for you. And I'll, let's repeat what you said earlier. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to find out more about what you do. Just repeat those websites again. Yeah, studentloanplanner.com. So just hit that site up. There's all kinds of stuff in the menu bar. Everything you need there, the contact button to get in touch, everything's right there. And you know, I'm Travis Hornsby on LinkedIn and social and those kind of places if you want to reach out, like just personally. Awesome, man. Well, look, I want to thank you for dropping by uh, to teach us a little bit more about the student loan debt, quote unquote, crisis. Some of the takeaway pieces of, you know, pieces of nugget, gold nuggets that you've given us today. I think you have a real awesome ability to you know, coming from someone who America, corporate world, to understand that you can be financially free and then be one of those Americans that, you know, I'm saying all Americans are like, you know, just can't get out of their own way, but a lot of Americans can't and they then thus don't get afraid and then don't ever take any action to do anything. And I think you did a, you've done a very good job at realizing what is not stimulating you taking action, figuring it out and going abroad and then learning life, some life lessons and coming back and then really focusing on what your goal, which you said earlier, is to start helping others, right? You, you were just being in a bond trader, just doing nothing, trying to climb the corporate ladder. It was just a meaningful, meaningless life. And so I think that's really, really awesome that you took control of it. You went traveling, you went and saw the world a little bit and then you came back and now really impacting a lot of people. On the, the professional side, I think there's obviously a lot to unpack there. We spent like 30, 45 minutes talking about just the complexities of unpacking student loan debt here in the United States. If anyone is you know, interested in you know, reaching out to you, I highly recommend it because there's so many people probably listening to this show struggling or perceived to be struggling with student loan debt where maybe there's an answer around the corner quicker than, than they realize if they talk to someone like yourself. Um, mate, did I leave anything out? Yeah, I just think you're, if you think your problem is your student loan debt, it's not. It's something else. Right. Yeah, that, right. that's that's a big thing is is I don't care how bad it is. I've seen people with a million in student loan debt. We've had multiple clients with a million of student loan debt. That's you you don't have a million dollars of student loan debt. Maybe one person wow. listening to the show does, right? Wow. So so that's so that means that yours is not as bad as you think. And you just need to understand the math behind why it's not. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, look, thank you again for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thank you, Reed. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Travis. Really, really hits the nail in today's world where so many people are talking about student loan debt. Please head over to his website at studentloanplanner.com. He's also got a podcast about the whole thing. He is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to refinancing and restructuring your student loan debt and making sure you just understand the basic facts because a lot of people are so confused that they don't know what the basic facts are. Um, I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's where we're all about here on this show and we're going to do it all again next week so be bold be brave and remember go give life a crack